The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Suburban Easter Podcast with me, Paul McGinn, from the University of Western Australia. Suburban Easter Podcast is part of the Urban Broadcast Collective. This episode of the Suburban Easter Podcast forms part of a special theme series of interviews called Carpool Triple X. The Carpool Triple X series will include a mix of podcasts and vodcasts focusing on the issue of porn performers as a migrant community. Los Angeles has long been the epicenter of global porn production and as such, hundreds if not thousands of people have migrated to LA since the late 1970s and early 1980s in order to be part of the adult entertainment industry. In this, the first episode of the Carpool Triple X series, I chat with Melissa Monet, a native New Yorker. Melissa moved to LA to work in the adult film industry in the early 1990s, as well as performing in front of the camera, Melissa has been a writer, director, and producer of adult films. Our interview took place as we drove around Venice, Santa Monica, and the Pacific Palisades. I'm here in my rental car with Melissa Monet. Hi, Melissa. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. It's good to be here in Venice. I'm looking at performers who've moved to Los Angeles or Las Vegas, and I'm really interested in your and their kind of migration story. You know, when did you come here? How did you get into the industry? Where did you live? You know, who did you hang out with? Were there special places for performers? I'm not so much interested in the, the pornography itself, but mm-hmm. more about the real life of a performer. Yeah. The, the day-to-day mundane I'm the, stuff. I'm the anti-performer when it comes to my personal life, but yeah. Okay, here we go, folks. We're off and running. In terms of living here in Venice, how long have you actually lived here in Venice or in L.A.? I came here in 1994, and I came straight here to Venice. Well, Marina Del Rey, actually, but yes, same same difference. And was that your purpose, to come to this part of L.A.? Did you have a plan? I kind of sort of had a plan. My, my main plan was is that if I was going to come to, back to California, I lived here once in 1982, uh, very briefly, and I said, if I'm coming back to California, I'm living at the beach. And that's the only way I'm going to live in California. And this is pretty much where I've been for the last 24 years. Okay, so Venice is kind of pretty, you know, pretty urban, pretty gritty type of city. Has it always been like that when you came here initially? Um, yeah, pretty much. It has been a um, interesting... Uh, when I came here in 94, it was right after the uh, big earthquake, the Northridge earthquake. And Santa Monica, especially here on the west side, looked like a it looked like a war zone. It was it was you know it was a disaster zone. It looked pretty bad, and parts of the valley still looked really bad even months later when I came. And then the other part was the fact that you know it was pretty grungy. I mean there was lots of drive-bys, shootings. There were it was a little dangerous. Not super dangerous to me because I grew up in New York City, but it was dangerous enough. But I was cool with it. <laughs> so, and I've I've watched the gentrification of it since. So, you mentioned New York, and our my listeners, our listeners might detect uh, a, a New York accent there. I ain't so, got no accent. <laughs> so obviously. Your migration is from East Coast to West Coast? Uh, actually, no. I went from New York to Hawaii and then Hawaii to here. And making that kind of move to Los Angeles, the West mm-hmm. Coast here, did you move with the kind of the purpose of getting into the adult industry? Is that... Yeah. I, I was living in Hawaii and my then-boyfriend, 
decided he I, he woke up one day and decided he wanted to be a porn star. And I tried to talk him out of it, but he it was insistent. So I came with him here to California, and this was just for a visit. And he went into Jim South's office, into World Modeling, which at the time there were only really two agencies, and then there were two or three other, you know, miscellaneous agents. We went into the, I went into the agency, and basically they laughed at him and said, but if you want to join in, come on in. <laughs> we could get you working tomorrow. And I said, well, I live in Hawaii. I'm going back to Hawaii. So we went back to Hawaii and decided to pack up our stuff and go back to California and that I would become a porn star. And that's what I did. But how, how did you feel getting that, I suppose, that invitation, you know, straight off the, off the bat, you know, he won't to, but we think you've got, got what it takes, basically. I your, had tits and react? a pussy. I had, that's all, that was the only requirements in this industry was I had tits and a pussy. I, I mean, that was the demand. I was uh, 29 when I got the offer, and when I came out, I was 30, and it was only a, about a week difference. We literally went back to Hawaii, packed up, and came out here. But did it, did it take you by surprise, shock? No. Uh, no. Were you flattered? No. <laughs> um, I had been in the sex industry. I got in the sex industry in 1983 um, and worked in several aspects of it, if you will. And then, so this was just... For for me, a natural progression was nothing. I was like, oh, okay. I love porn. <laughs> I was like, sure. Had you ever, during your other times in the sex industry doing other things, had you ever thought yourself about, you know, I can, I can make it in porn or I want to do porn? Never once. I mean, I liked it. Uh, anyway, the uh, I was a fan of porn. I watched a lot of porn. Um, so, I mean, New York obviously is the, I suppose in many senses, is the, the home of pornography when it started in terms of commercial porn. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been exemplified recently in The Deuce, for example, yes, the show The Deuce, which kind of shows you the evolution uh, of the pornography. And apparently I lived among all the big New York porn stars and I just didn't even know it. <laughs> I had I, when the last place I lived in New York, they lived next door to me. When I lived up on 88th Street, I had uh, two of them lived across the street from me. I had no idea. The only person I knew that I had seen quite a few times and actually spoken to was Annie Sprinkle, who was uh, you know she's the, an iconic star, obviously yeah, I in think, her industry. Um, Nina Hartley recently recently described her as the kind of the. The OG of porn, basically. She is. The OG of um, sex, education, sex education. The OG of so many things. I mean, I, I, and I looked up to her because she was always bubbly and always fun and very open. And then she also, in New York, we had, um, and, and we just had a conversation about this. There was a... a public access uh, channel in New York and so Robin Bird had a show and Annie would be on there with whatever lover at the time and I mean they, so I got to know who all these people were I mean Rick Savage who is a, a dear friend and just one of the most lovely people in this business and the quintessential male porn star, New York porn star and he did these commercials on the channel and everything else and it was a blast I used to watch it every night because I was, back then I was uh, I was a call girl and so I used to spend I used to spend all this time waiting for the phone to ring <laughs> and I'd watch channel J or I think it was channel W at one time, channel J whatever, and so that was fun so you Go back to Hawaii, and then you make the decision to move yeah, back to, move just to California. and came here. With the intent of being in the industry? Yes. That was the only reason to come here, yes. Okay. And did you know any other performers at the time when you, when you moved here? No. I only knew of them, but I didn't know anyone who was actually in the business. When 
back in the 80s, I lived with a former porn star for a short period of time. Um, um, a male or a female female performer? performer. Okay. Um, just lived with her. Uh, she was also uh, a call girl at the same place that I was, and so we ended up, you know, just room- being roommates. By the way, she told me nothing about the business. <laughs> All I know is that she used to go and pick up big bell sacks of fan letters and bring them back to the house and answer every single one of them, sit on the floor and answer every fan letter. Most people will probably know that, you know, when we, when we think about porn in Los Angeles, that it's the San Fernando Valley is the kind of, mm-hmm. I suppose, the epicenter. So when you moved here back in 94... Was the valley the epic? Was it the epicenter of porn at that time, or it was? And then there was a mini epicenter here in Marina del Rey, and uh, I was—I I can't tell you how blessed I was coming into this business. One of the first people I met was Steve Drake. Just he made my life very easy by telling me who to steer clear of and who was good and I didn't even have to do research he just told me work for him work for them work for them don't work for them you know and it was great but I ended up moving into the building that he lived in he got helped me get the apartment we and actually just drove past it yeah. uh, in Marina Dory we just Marina, drove Marina. past yeah. it okay. yeah and I it, and anyway, across, uh, right right there, we had uh, David Christopher and uh, Frank Marino and who else? Oh, Paul Fishbein from, that owned AVN at the time, who started AVN and stuff. He had come over from Philadelphia originally, He did, he came from he, Philly. He was a, uh, another, mi- was, another porn migrant, yeah, then, basically. David was from New York, and I think Frank was from Miami. Then a few blocks away, there was... Howard, Howie was was from there, and he lived. He was a New Yorker too, and he lived down the street. And then we had a, a bunch other, and then cousin Stevie lives by me, and and still to this day, and we're friends. I'm friends with him and his wife. So we have like all these people were in the marina, and there's still quite a few people that are here. Mark Davis lived here for a while. Um, Oh God! What was this, this other guy's stage name? I can't remember. But he lived here for a very long time, and uh, there was a bunch of us at one time. There, were, and Paul Thomas lives down here, PT. Uh, so we we still have a little enclave here. So in, in geography, uh, we talk about when you know different ethnic or migrant groups cluster together. We describe those as ethnoburbs. What you seem to be describing is a kind of porno burb in a way, basically, that there's... Uh, this was the place that the people in porn went to get away from the other people in porn. <laughs> so away from the valley? Yeah. Okay. Away from the valley, away from the other people in porn, because, it, I mean, for me, I had already passed all my party days and all my, you know, hanging out and, I had my animals, you know, I always had my dogs. So it was like, I was on porn sets and then I was like, bye, I'm going to decompress back at the beach. And that's what it was for for me anyway, was I came here to decompress from the long hours on set. I mean, nowadays, and I know that there's still people that shoot for ridiculous amount of hours, but back then it was not unusual to be on set for 22 hours. It was horrible. Basically all day. <laughs> 27 hours. I was just talking to uh, Quasar Man about this the other day that in the old days we used to be on set like 27 hours was I actually been on set for 27 hours more than one time you know it's insane so for listeners uh, might be interested to know Quasar Man is uh, Mike Quasar who's um, a long standing uh, porn director videographer videographer very well kind of known on Twitter I suppose Mm -hmm. in the in the pornosphere. Mike is hysterical. Mike is a dear friend. And we have, I'm very lucky. I have been able to avoid, for the most part, with very few exceptions, I have been able to make friends in this business and keep friends in this business for 
I mean, almost all the people that are still around from the original days that I made friends with then are still my friends, you know, and then some I met later on, like I met Julia later on, Julia Ann, who is one of my best friends, and then, you know, Kelly Holland, who, who owns Penthouse, and she was a director when I first started, these are people that I forged friendships with, I mean, I've worked for Kelly on and off for years. And she's kind of, she's in the valley, but she's kind of in, in her own compound. So for her, it's great. She yeah. has her escape to the animals and everything else. And Julia, also big animal lover, big animal rescuer, has her own thing going on. And, and this is who we are, you know. We, we're other people. Yeah. So for me to be here in the marina and Venice, I'm very involved with my neighbors and my neighborhood. I couldn't do that in the valley. So is the valley, I mean, in terms of when new talent comes to Los Angeles, is it a case that new porn performers will live in the same neighborhoods and suburbs or, you know, will they, will they form a community, you know, like other migrant groups? Is it, that the, the thing? Um, yeah, but, and, and in a lot of ways, they live in the same apartments and then they end up living in the same buildings together, you know, and some of them just... It's because there's just so many of us, <laughs> you know, they got to go somewhere. And a lot of a lot of the girls that come into the business, especially the, the younger ones, they don't drive. You know, I mean, I didn't drive for, I drove a cab in New York in the early 80s, and then I didn't drive for like 10 years. A yellow cab? Um, no, a livery. Oh, okay. And then I didn't drive for 10 years. In the most, one of the most car-dependent cities in the world, you come to L.A. and you don't right. drive. Well, I mean, I do drive. I did I did drive, but I didn't drive-drive. Yeah. And so right before I moved out in New York, I bought a car, and I was driving again for the first time in 10 years, and then I shipped that car to Hawaii, and then I shipped that car back here to California. But, but a lot of people don't do that. They don't drive. Now it's easy with Uber. You just jump in the Uber and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the girls come in, and so they had to take cab, or some of their agents had drivers, and it was easier for them to just stay in the valley. That kind of community, whether it be kind of place-based, you know, people living in the same apartment blocks or mm -hmm. in the same neighborhoods, I mean, is that really kind of, is that a valuable resource to have when you come into the industry as a new migrant, basically, or, you know, as a new performer? I mean, do you need that, kind, you need those social networks to help you get through and make it in the industry? Uh, I don't know if it helps you make it in the industry, but it definitely does make it more convenient to do stuff. I mean, you're, you're closer to the testing centers, you're closer to almost all the shoots are in the valley. Okay. So, you know, you're not commuting, you're not spending time on the freeways, you're not doing all those kind of things, which I think any business, any any job, I mean, I hated commuting when I lived in New York. That's why I moved into Manhattan, to be closer to work and closer to the things that I love. And I think that's what most people do. I love the ocean. That's why I'm here, you know. But I don't think a lot of people like the inconvenience of being out here. But to me, it's not inconvenient. Yeah. So it's in a, again, I'm going to be geographical for a, for a moment. So there's there's like a agglomeration effects basically going on. So you got to, if you live near the work, the opportunities are there. You can, you know, you might get a call. Right. Be in a show, or you can present yourself and say that you're ready for work. Can I, can I get on set today? Well, it doesn't always, it doesn't really work like that. But the way it works is that in the old days, I was, because I was older and I was more responsible, I would get last minute calls if a girl flaked and someone would just say, hey, I know you'll show up, <laughs> you know, can you get here? How fast can you get here? And I'm like, well, I live on the west side. I couldn't always get there in time allotted, yeah. you know, so I still got there before anybody else. <laughs> but yes, I mean, if you were 20 minutes away, it's one thing, but if you're 10 minutes away, of course, they're going to take you because you're 10 minutes away, depending on what they're looking for. I mean, there's too many variables, really, to say that. But if you're closer to your agent and you're, and you're new, your agent will tell you to come over and they'll drive you around to different sets to meet new directors and new producers and stuff like that. Some agents, not all of them do that. 
sometimes the girls have to do that on their own. So just coming back to when you um, when you move from Hawaii mm-hmm. to California, how easy or difficult was it to find housing and stuff? I mean, for any migrant basically moving somewhere, you need some kind of you know contacts. You need some ins. Back then, was it? I mean, was the world a different place? Was it easy to get housing? Did landlords know that you were a performer? And did that have any impacts on on getting housing, for example? I had a, I, I still had a decent amount of money when I moved here. I had actually sold my business in New York and moved to Hawaii to retire. So I still had money. Um, my then boyfriend still hadn't spent all of it on me yet. He waited another year before he took everything. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I didn't have problems, but then again, I was older. I had credit. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had. All the things that you need to move yeah, into so then, any apartment and I'd already done it a million times yeah if I would if I was fresh off the bus I never had my own apartment I didn't know what to do then I probably would have moved into the valley with whatever agent I would have been with or or at least closer I probably would have moved closer to world modeling at the time like a lot of other people did right and they were they were the agency at the time basically they were they were the biggest agency it was it was Jim or it was Reb and then other than that there were two independents one was good one was horrible and that's all there really was at the time the world modeling was enormous they had the majority of the performers Reb didn't have that many in comparison it was a big difference but the girls did some of the girls did live closer to Reb too even though he was in kind of Hollywoody area he wasn't um, he wasn't in the valley mm-hmm. and some of the girls did um, live closer to him and that wasn't very convenient at all because we didn't shoot Hollywood that often back then so where was most of the films done back then in the valley all in the valley yeah yeah all in the valley the, the biggest the biggest studios were there even the crap studios were there I mean they were all there yeah. how did the valley I suppose become the valley what were the benefits of the porn industry locating there probably because they had you know you could get really cheap warehouses because back then you know they manufactured the VHS tapes I, you know it was a totally different time we used to shoot on beta SP and then you'd have to do transfers and you had these big machines I mean everything was different back then all the computers were big everything was big you know so it was a totally different time and you know VHS's took up more space and then you had to keep all your masters and you, you just needed room and they were all this warehouse space and I think that's what made people go there was cheaper you know per square foot and blah 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 and yeah it was just different it was yeah. just a different time I mean now everything's remote I don't even need you know I could run an entire company off my laptop now and back then in terms of you mentioned all those other guys for example who had come over from different parts in terms of other mm-hmm. performers I mean were there lots of people just basically migrating to be important back then because that, that would have been the days of porn's you know hey, ascendancy dude. in many senses uh, I don't know I mean everyone glorifies their own era so I mean I don't know the golden age of porn 70s the golden age of porn 80s the golden age of porn 90s you know um, in, in a way porn's better now I I, I and in other ways, it's not. So it just depends. Everybody, everybody has a very interesting um, memory and take on the past. Yeah. No matter what it is, either people distort it that it was horrible, or they distort it that it was great. For me, it was great. The only bad things were in my personal life had nothing to do with porn. And then even that, I got to go away and things were great again, all over, top, bottom, front, center, whatever. Yeah. So it's really hard to say, but I think that with the migration of the people, very few people came to the West Side because it was 
always more expensive than the valley. It just by square footage, by everything, it was just more expensive. And then, like you say, you, and there was your, no your space. Your commute time and your commute cost. Yeah. If you want to, if you go on the. And there were companies. The, there were two companies out here. That, here in the marina was Anabolic was out here. I think always, and and Onizis company was out here for a while. But that was it. I don't. I don't remember any. And and AVN wasn't that far away. They were still kind of on the west side, mid city. So they were convenient for me, and they were still in a place where it was convenient for anybody else to come, you know, come to the shop. So your friends from when you when you moved here and. Were they all from other different parts of this, the U.S.? We're all different parts of the world. I mean, this this industry has always um, attracted people from everywhere. It was easier back then. It was easier to come into this country to work and do porn. So we used to have a lot more foreign performers that used to come here. And I, I really miss the ease of which they used to come here because I, I met some absolutely fantastic people. And I know that a few of them were denied visas coming back over the years and different things and a lot of it was because of porn that they would deny those I mean one of, one of the interesting things that I'm kind of trying to make sense of is in this performers as a migrant community is you know is looking at that internal migration so whether you've come from Ohio to Los Angeles or Kentucky or New York but on that kind of international dimension you know were they Europeans were they British were they Australians were they Africans were they from wherever basically was there any notable trends during the, that yes. golden era of oh golden? absolutely I mean there was a point where we used to have so many Czech girls come in and and they were stunning I mean we had girls that came from middle European descent and and countries and they were all tall and beautiful with beautiful bodies and they were I'd hate to say they were more apt to do more would be a, a, a way to put it but the Europeans didn't have the same hang-ups as right. a lot of the American girls. And they were prettier. And they were sometimes classier. And there were a lot of other things that came into play. Unfortunately, a lot of them didn't speak English. And if they did speak English, they had such a strong accent that it made it harder when we were doing... Dialogue? Yeah, yeah. You know, bigger films. <laughs> You could take someone like, oh, we had a big influx from France at one time. And, you know, people like Rebecca Lords came in, right. who, if you don't know who she is, she's stunning. She is as stunning today as she was the day I met her 20 some odd years ago. And she's the perfect example. The first day I met her, she was only here a couple of days poor thing spoke two words of English and then I didn't see her for maybe a week two weeks and I was able to have a full on conversation with her in English it made it, it boggled the mind the other person that would be a good example of that and he came much later was Jean Valjean Jean Valjean came in didn't speak a stitch of English. I gave him a ride home, maybe after a week of, after meeting him, where he really didn't speak much English. I had a broken English conversation with him when I gave him his ride, a ride home, and he could barely speak English. And then I saw him a month later, full on conversation in English. I'm like, I still can't say five words in, yeah, French, in French, you know. It's just amazing how a lot of the performers came in and just like like most migrants, like most people who come from other countries, other cities that struggle harder to make themselves fit in, if you will. Yeah. Whether it's just because demographically they came from a cornfield in Iowa and now they're in the big city or they come from another country and they don't speak the language and they strive to be better. And it's very interesting and it's one of the things that I love about meeting people from other places is actually watching them coalesce. The two examples you used there, you highlighted one female example and one male example. I think a lot of people will tend to see porn through, you know, a gendered lens, and we normally talk about women in porn. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm, I'm just kind of curious in terms of male migrants, in terms of... Uh, There's been plenty. Lots of British. We've had more than our fair share of British actors. Yeah. I know that at the moment there's a number of British people quite Good. dominant in the industry at the minute. Kieran Lee, for example, mm -hmm. is it Danny? Is it Danny Dan Mountain. And then Danny, I don't know Danny if Day, is it? Or? I don't know if Danny Mountain's British, but he does have an accent. A lot of these people I know, I know, and I've worked with, like you know, Mick Blue, who yes. has you know, <laughs> and and his wife and his beautiful wife, and you know, they're both from other countries, and you know, we tend to think of porn, American porn, as Americans, but it's not true. It's peppered with people from everywhere, and it's great. I mean, and it's great to watch them adapt, but I will say that the foreigners adapt so much better than people from the U.S., from other places. They just do. Adapting to living in L.A. and adapting to, adapting to the industry? Both. Both. You know, and, and mind you, I don't know what maybe some of their personal struggles might be, whether it's harder for them because language barriers and this whatever, but there are so many wonderful people that came from other places that I've been lucky enough to call my friends that the people that are from here, I think it's just easier for them to go home and miss home where the people who come here from other countries have already kind of made up their mind that I chose to come here I'm thousands of miles away from home so yeah. I gotta make it work gotta make it work yeah. right as opposed to someone saying um, I could go home you know <laughs> I could jump in my car and just drive home even the Canadians I could just go home you know well, I was gonna also say that we have a lot of Canadians. Canadians have, have come into yeah um, yeah a okay. lot of Canadians um, just returning to uh, Quasar my own and Toronto has the porn festival as well. So mm -hmm. I mean, it's um, I mean, there's an interesting geography there about you know where porn is, I suppose, produced. Right. In the sense that you know, so the valley is where it's made, but in Toronto is where it's reproduced in the sense that it's done through film festivals. Well, there's also a lot of companies that that generate adult out of Canada, but they shoot here and right. produce here. You know, like Mile High, which is. Um, a company that I've worked for many times and they do some of the better products here they're up in Canada and there's, there's quite a few of them but again you've got the companies and some of those companies at Mile High has been in business for I don't know how many years 40 years 30 years I don't I don't know but a long, long time and they've made it work I want to kind of return to the issue of housing mm -hmm. and, and migration and there are no porn stars that live here that I know of. <laughs> Just say it. In Santa Monica? <laughs> no, this is the Pacific Palisades. Yeah, we're going to have to turn around in a little bit. Sex work, different forms of sex work, even porn, even though it's it's a mass-consumed uh, product, there's still a lot of stigma around it. People who are involved mm -hmm. in, the, in the sex industry, and even though you might be, uh, you know, a porn star and that everybody knows who you are you might be like you know that celebrity porn star i'm just curious in terms of you know when performers try to get into the housing market in other ways does that kind of stigma follow them yes i think that for a lot of people i mean what do you put on your resume actress i mean that's that's what you put on there and then you know i don't look like the quintessential um porn star so, so no one's the, going to question, question me. I don't. I don't have. Well, especially when I first came in, yeah. everyone had blonde hair, big boobs, you know, blah blah blah. But um, I think for the most part, the, what I mean is, is that it's easier to get a place when I first came here because you could lie and people couldn't go online and find you in five seconds, um, and they couldn't look up half the things anyway. So. If, you, you know, you could say whatever you wanted to and you got someone to vouch for you these days, you know, it's really easy, easy to look to, you up yeah. and find out whether you are what you say you are to get into the apartment. I was lucky, like I said, I had Steve Drake um, brought me into the building that he was in. Nobody really asked me too many questions. He vouched for me. He'd been living there for years already. And so... So you had a sponsor, kind of basically. Kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, 
paid my deposit. Guarantor. I had it. Well, I didn't need a guarantor because I, I had it. Well, we're gonna go straight back yep. the way we came. Okay. I didn't need a guarantor because I had money in my bank account and I had great credit at the time, so I didn't have. That that's all they needed to check. They did a credit check. I passed. It was fine. Everything was good. So that was not an issue. They didn't really care what I did for a living. I had enough money in my bank account that, unfortunately, <laughs> again, the rent was going to get paid. Yeah, the rent was going to get paid. And um, actually, when I moved into that building, was it? Oh, it was. Yeah, it was after I broke up with the boyfriend. So actually, I didn't have any money anymore, and I didn't have great credit at that time. I don't know how the hell I got in that building, to be honest with you. It must have been all Steve Drake at that point. <laughs> because there's no way I could have gotten in with my credit score at that time. And in terms of your friendship networks, your social networks, uh -huh. were they mostly with people in porn? I mean, is it, or was it non-porn people and mixture? Or it was, was a it mixture. One, one more of the other? It was a mixture. I, I mean, I've been very, I, I'm lucky. I make friends very easily. I keep my friends. I mean, I have a shitload of friends from public school still, you know, at 53 years old. I must be doing something right. Um, but the, I, but I also make enemies very easily as well. I have a lot of detractors. But um, the, I, I made friends right away in my neighborhood mainly because I had dogs. Yeah. And I met people meeting my dogs and I went to the coffee shop with my dog and I met a gazillion people and I'm friends with a lot of them still too. The unfortunately a lot passed away because they were older. Um, you know, cuz now I'm going 25 years. Yep. You know. Uh, but I had my porn friends and I was friends with the people in my neighborhood that were in porn and like I said I still am some of them. So it just, I mean, I'm a friendly person, so I just, you know, no, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm flattered that you guys asked because I'm not in the business anymore, really. I still write in the business. Yeah. And if, you know, somebody needed something, I'd, I'd come do it, but I, I don't perform anymore. I did my last movie on my 50th, 50th or 51st birthday, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the whole, this whole, whole idea, basically, this little concept of Carpool Triple X. Right, it's about migration. It's really about migration, you know, in terms of, I mean, it ties in with the research that I do, kind of on the sex industry. So I'm doing some stuff on online consumption of pornography, looking at kind of patterns and trends in that. But yeah, but I think a lot of people that live here, you know, on the west side, are water people and have to be by water. And I think that's the migration for yeah. those people. You know, I could not understand why anyone would want to live in California and not live at the water. It's like, I lived in Hawaii. I lived at the water. <laughs> and the only time I was landlocked is when I lived in New Mexico. Otherwise, when I lived in New York, I, I was born and raised on an island. And then when I went back there for a year, I lived at the beach. So water, 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 always water. And I think that's a that that is migration. <laughs> I couldn't imagine landlocked. being landlocked in the valley living in California. I that would not be for me. And and the other thing is too, and a lot of people tell you this, that I walk everywhere. I walk sometimes 10, 12 miles a day with my dog. The west side is walking area. That's yep. why I made so many friends. That's why I know all my neighbors. It's why I like neighborhoods. I grew up in New York. We're in a neighborhood. I lived in Manhattan in a neighborhood. And so when I came here, I had to be someplace that was a neighborhood. Yeah. The valley is not a neighborhood to me. Um, people don't really walk. They drive everywhere. There are times I haven't, I've gone a month without moving my car. We have a joke. Oh my God, I went to the valley today. You went east of Lincoln, which is just a few blocks east of the beach. You know, and to us, it's like... It's another world in oh, many senses. There are some people that don't go east of Dell, which is only two blocks from the beach, three blocks from the beach. So it, that that's a very big point of the geography yeah. of yeah. being a beach dweller. Yeah. You know, we live where everybody wants to come visit. When people when people in the valley say, and it's the drive. Nobody comes to visit me. Nobody. They're like, 
oh, to drive to the beach and and then people invite me to do stuff in the valley and i'm like oh my god i think i'd rather stick out pokers in my eye than drive to the valley right now you know and in the summertime people go oh come over and go in the pool and i'm like i have a big pool i don't need to come to you in the pool or the pacific ocean sitting there exactly you know and and the other thing that's funny and my neighbors and i always kid around about this is that we do go to the beach but we don't go to the beach yeah you know i mean i used to surf when i first came here i used to surf all the time here but the comparison of surfing here in comparison to surfing in hawaii oh, eh, nothing it's freezing cold out here takes you forever to paddle out and you hit the beach uh in second in hawaii you paddle out like a breeze you think that you're only a few feet from the beach and you turn around and you realize that you pedaled out a mile. That's how easy it is. And then you ride a swell all the way in. And you're riding for a full minute sometimes to the beachhead. Totally different surfing. So that kind of, you know. Yeah. But well, I walk on the beach every yeah. morning. Every I, morning. I lived in London uh, for seven years. Just under seven years. I live south of the River Thames. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the geography of London is do you live north of the river or south right. of the river? And it's those geographical divisions are they really stand out. I think no matter where you go, it's either a north south thing or an east west thing. Or I'm a know. west side girl. Yeah. Period. Here. When I lived in New York, I was an upper east side girl. I was an east side girl. I only lived on the west side very briefly. Otherwise, I lived on the east side. I lived in the village. I lived right on the dividing line east on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> so, um, so I was almost always an East Side girl in Manhattan, and it, and I know, you know, I mean, this is the way they are in, you know, in a lot of places. What is yeah. the dividing line? You live, you know, on the West Side. In terms of, um, I like that phrase you used, the kind of the golden era of porn. Mm -hmm. So, so the eighties and the early nineties were were arguably the most kind of profitable in a sense, and that's when the the whole idea of a porn star and a and a big celebrity sense probably emerged. Would that be right? Yeah, but you yeah. know, and and that was another thing. Quasar and I were talking about, you know, when everyone, I, somebody said that porn stars were making this ridiculously hand over fist money in in the 80s and 90s and it's not necessarily true the the going rate was not that high the difference was we were doing one hit wonders yeah. which they're doing again now one hit wonders where you shoot everything in one day and there were people like uh, Scotty who was shooting three movies in two days <laughs> which was like insane that's why we weren't set for 24 hours and stuff but the um, the Again, when people have a memory of things, it's so distorted sometimes. Were there people making ridiculous amounts of money? Technically, yes. They were under contract. A contract girl was under contract, made a ridiculous amount of money. But what was expected of her may not have been that she had to do a lot of films. But she had to do a ton of signings. Yeah. And those were built into the contract. That was still money. Yeah. That they weren't necessarily getting paid extra for. And there were a lot, a lot, a lot of signings. And, you know, and then there were the feature dancers. Now, the feature dancers, they made stupid money in those days. And I do mean stupid money. Yeah. That's so why this, so they many... Would, would they go on tour? Yeah. They would go All on tour. around the country with, or around the state or... Oh, with trunks full of different clothing and costumes and accoutrements and blah 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 and it, it was just a different time for the feature dancers and some of them were magnificent and they would come into this business the dancers would come into this business to get box covers and that would make them uh, it would make it more lucrative for them yeah. to go back out on the road with these box covers signings it, it just 
was better for business, but a lot of the strippers were terrible porn stars, and a lot of the porn stars were terrible strippers. So that, you know, some of them were able to do both, like Julia Ann or Janine Lundemulder and, and those girls, Diana Loren. These girls were fantastic dancers, fantastic feature dancers. They knew how to command the room. They knew how to, you know, do that. And then they were great porn stars, too. And so you had those girls. And those were a very golden era. You had the G Ginger Lynn. Ginger Lynn, one of the biggest porn stars of all time. On the road, feature dancing, crossover, acting, this, that. The other thing, she was the girl everybody wanted to be. She was the girl next door. She was everything, all in one, you know. And Ginger's a good friend. And Ginger is funny. And she's smart. And she's all that. It just depends on who you you're asking about the golden age. Ginger's yeah. time was before my time. Not that much more before yeah. my time, but before but these, my time. These eras can come in two-year cycles or five-year ones, you know, or yeah, a decade. And I've been lucky enough to be here long enough to see these peaks and valleys that we've come and gone and blah, blah, blah. And and I, I do it from a very different perspective than some of the other people who have come and then left. You know, I mean, I never laughed, really. I never laughed. I, I went to the other side of the camera, but I never really laughed. And it's funny when people go, oh, well, you weren't here. Well, I was here, but I was running companies, you know. I mean, I was with Playgirl for six years. You're just not, you're just not like you say, when you're in front of the camera, you're very visible. Right. But, but anyone who I hired... Obviously knew that you were still that I was giving them tons of work. I mean, my crew. I had the same crew for years at at all the companies that I worked at. I worked at quite a few companies. I mean, when I uh, I had Oasis and I was on the contract with Oasis, I hired the same people. So those people were constantly working, and then the talent. I hired the best talent because I needed actors and I and I wanted people who were passionate and knew how to fuck and blah 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 blah. All those things were so important to me, but I was in control of that at the time. Yeah. And so to me, that was the best time. That's another thing Quasar and I were talking about was as a director, it didn't pay for me to be in front of the camera. I made a shitload of money as a director and a producer. I didn't need to be performing. I was able to make my own schedule, but as a, as talent, you could turn down work whenever yep. you wanted to, but you couldn't create your own work. As a director and producer, I created my own work. I went, I want to work 10 days this month. I'm going to write this script. I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to get paid for it. Yay! Wow. <laughs> and it was, for me, the golden age of porn Big. was when I was behind the camera when yes when I was running when when Oasis was mine when I was their director their key director and producer that was for me the best time in porn I mean, um, what, what, what period was that then? Um, I did that pretty pretty much. I was a performer for two and a half years, and about six months into performing, I realized that my age was going to make my shelf life quite short, and I started directing right away. And then I started learning to produce and write and do all the things here to um, supplement when my star was going to start to fade. So, and I lasted two and a half years as a performer. I did but at the same time I was also producing and directing yeah. and then I decided to go into producing and directing full time so just to come back to um, to the deuce for a second mm -hmm. given that it's kind of contemporary at the moment so so Maggie Gyllenhaal's character in the deuce basically right. mimics what you have just outlined basically mm -hmm. You know, was was that role written with you in mind, by any chance? No. <laughs> I, I doubt I, it. I, I wish. Because the error, I, that wish. <laughs> the error that they're doing is obviously not my error. No. I say that um, probably Candace is probably who um, they're mimicking in that show would be Candida, Candida, Candida Royale. Candida, Royale. Yeah. yeah, Candida Royale would be who they are mimicking in 
in that because she was, I don't know if she was the first, but at the time, the most famous and the most successful of the first yeah. to do that. And she's brilliant. Everything that, you know, Candace had her own style and her own look and her own thing. And she was able to still carry it through in New York when everybody else moved to California. She was still able to keep it going in New York. And so, you know, I mean, I could see, I, I mean, she's the perfect person for them to have chosen. And she's brilliant. And she's lovely, you know, in the whole bit. Candace was all that in a bag of chips. I think... What do we say in the movie industry? What do you guys say in the movie industry? It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Yeah. It's a wrap. Okay, it's a wrap. Melissa, thank you very much. It's been, thank you. Uh, it's been informative, enlightening Yay. to kind of hear, a, I suppose, a, a different side to the porn industry. Mm -hmm. Behind the behind the scenes. If we can put it like that, basically. Sure. And the focus isn't on the, on the porn, per se. Cause one of the things I'm interested in is moving beyond the box cover or moving beyond the, the content. The, the, the internet image of what a performer is and breaking down that kind of stereotypical two-dimensional view that we that we as a society might have of what performers are they're just a performer but performers are obviously performing seal very you know in terms of the, their diversity is in migrant groups where they come from what they've done as jobs when they're in porn you know what they do after porn in terms of becoming lawyers and engineers or being engineers before they get into porn I'm thinking of Mercedes Carrera I think Mm -hmm. was an engineer before she got right. into the industry and it's those things that I think I was in mutual funds I had a huge accounting background that's why um, becoming a producer was so easy for me and people will not I think a lot of people won't understand that or, or won't get that basically they'll just say a performer is a performer is a performer mm -hmm. and they've never been Oh, I mean, most that. people, like, it, I, and most people, but a lot of people, when I meet them and they find out what I've done, they, they're all in shock because not only do I not look like a porn star, and I really don't look like a porn star, nor do I conduct myself the way that people would expect of a porn star, which most of us do not conduct ourselves the way people have in their brain that we are. But people are like, no way. You? Yeah. You know, and sometimes I, I'm like, okay, am I that unattractive that you can't possibly put me in a porn star position? But they just go, but you just don't seem like... And I'm like, but what do we seem like? We come from every walk of life. We we are peppered from everywhere. And, and we're all kinds of things. Uh, when you take Mercedes Carrera, for instance, the kid's a friggin' genius. She's really smart. Yeah. Really, really smart. And there were other people. When I first came in this business, Karina Collins, who's a very, very dear friend of mine still to this day. Oh, my God. She's a friggin' genius. I mean, really a genius. And if you met her, she's like, hey, you know, and don't try to speak to her because she'll be like sitting there going, I, I, I don't even know those words. I need mean, a thesaurus. I need a thesaurus, please. Somebody help. I can't speak to her sometimes. And she is that brilliant. I, I saw Sherry mm -hmm. Deville and Aaliyah Love on Holly Randall's. Mm -hmm. And they were highlighting the fact that, you know, society, a lot of people think that as a performer, that's what you do 24-7. You're expected to be the way they see you. On, and you go home a, and you have a kazillion sex with other people. Yeah. I want you know, my dog. I want my dog. <laughs> We, you know, and it's funny because people, I, I, I ran into somebody in the supermarket that was a fan and he, you know, and I could see that he was kind of not stalking, but wanted to say hi, but didn't know how to approach me. And he's like, I can't believe it. I, I, I see you here. And I'm like, I have to eat. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you want from me? I'm sorry I'm in the supermarket, <laughs> you know? And it, it is funny that people just don't assume that, you know, you're yeah. going to be doing normal everyday yeah. things. Can, I'm an accountant, uh, an engineer, right. you know, whatever, basically. You a lawyer. Some some people are have incredible backgrounds and, and degrees. I mean, there are people in our industry with medical degrees and law degrees and everything that you could put. Engineering and physics, degrees in physics, PhDs. Yep. We have a bunch of PhDs. 
I mean, I don't know what makes people think that just because we choose to have sex for a living, that that means that we're less of whatever, you know. Less of a, a person, less of a human. Well, no, I, I mean, there are people that believe that, too, well, which is horrible, you know, and, and some of the, the religious fanatics really think very low of us, which is fine because I don't think very highly of them. But when somebody says to me, I didn't expect you to be this smart, as opposed to... And I, and I said to them, as opposed to what? I said, if you're going to engage me and that's the way you're going to start the conversation with these backhanded compliments, like, oh, you're smart, but the rest of them, not so much. I'm not the smartest person in the room all the time. My quasar, if he's in the room, he's the smartest guy. And, and there are people even smarter than him. Paul Fishbein, brilliant. I mean, there are people who you really, you engage in conversation with and, and it's hysterical because they're like looking at you like the RCA Victor dog. And you're like, dude, seriously, you know, but I'm, I, I, I don't mind and I don't take it to heart. And you know, a, I'm older. And I was always my own person. I was my own person a very long time ago before I came into porn. So I've had an advantage over a lot of other people who came here. I had a life before here. I had love before I came here. I had done all my partying in the very, very late 70s, early 80s. I was completely done with that shit. And so I didn't fall into a lot of the pitfalls that is easy. And it's not, you know, we're going through this thing right now where people are like, why are drugs so prevalent? And it, it, that comes up every couple of years, you know, about, oh, well, the girls are on drugs. And it's not true. And it's never been true. It's that sometimes young people get money and they have fun with that money and that sometimes leads to trouble because there's no one here to keep them in check we are not our brother's keepers we are the same individuals we try to tell people i can't tell you how many people i've been on set and i'm like you need to slow down you need to save your money you need to do this if you need to speak to someone you should get an accountant da, da, da. get away from this agent you should get on the fucking bus i'll put you on the bus myself and pay for your bus ticket go home i mean there are just there's every walk of life and you can't police them all and nor should we be expected to you know and that that the big argument right now on twitter is a certain group of people who feel that we should be policing every person that comes in this business. You're 18 and you come in, you can go in the army of your own accord. You can drink of your own accord. Well, depending 21, on. But well, that's here. Uh, yeah. But there are certain states it's still yep. 18. You smoke pot, you do drugs, you have sex. These are all things that are personal choices. And it's horrifying if someone doesn't reach out. But to expect everyone to police a couple of hundred people. And mind you, as a core, we're a couple of hundred people. Some of these people are not in the main core. We have mainstream porn. We have the A-list. We have the B-list. And we have the C, D, and oh my God list. And then we have the internet people who never commingle with us. We have the other communities. We have the gay community, which doesn't really sexually intermingle with the mainstream straight community. Sometimes there's a crossover, but that's not common. Yeah, in porn. Right. Yeah. The lesbian porn, there's the hardcore lesbian porn, and very few of those actresses come in to the lesbian, mainstream lesbian porn. Those performers are usually, with few exceptions, that don't do boy-girl. They do boy-girl and they do girl-girl. And then you've got the trans community, and then there were various other communities within that, the S&M community and the, the other fetish stuff that's non-sex or the fetish stuff that is sex. There's so many different aspects and when people start going, oh, you know, you're not helping this girl. 
I don't know who that fucking girl is. And I'm not it's, meaning to be mean about it, but how can you expect me to know every single person? So how can I possibly know everybody in porn? I know everybody I worked with. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I know the girl who came in for a day or a month. And there were some girls that have been here for years I never met. What Our paths just didn't cross. I mean, when I made my comeback, I made a couple of boy-girl movies, but most of them were girl-girl movies. So people go, how come you didn't work with so-and-so? Well, I wasn't doing boy-girl. I wasn't on set with them. How how do you expect me to meet this actor when I don't go to the parties, I don't hang out? Uh, I suppose what you're saying there is, is that there are, well, there's a multitude of porn communities, mm -hmm. and there's a multitude of pornographies, given the kind of the different... Right. Well, yeah, if you want to go to the genre breakdown... You know, and all that, you know that there so and then some of those genres will obviously might bump into one another mm -hmm. but others may never right if you're in the, like the mainstream industry or if you're clamming on your own and doing porn you're technically still in porn but you're not in the core part right yeah. you know or if there are girls that only do foot fetish videos I if I'm not on set with you how on earth would I know them yes and so it, it's not I, I'm not putting anyone down I'm not I believe me I've done shit. I own it all. I own every fucking bit of it. And that's a, that's a big thing for me. Yeah. Is that I'm okay with it. I know what I've done. There were a few things I wish I had it, but I did them anyway. And I own every one of them. It's great. These little communities that we have. And, you know, I, I'll go back to Karina Collins. Karina Collins owns a big S&M club. Big, big S&M club. It's been around for 20, 20 plus years. The S&M community from back then, no matter how many fetish videos we did, no matter what, every single one of those people have been to that club. We shot movies at the club. I think they, up until like two years ago, I think we were still shooting a lot of movies at the club. And so the old people the older people the older, the older people and some of the old people too I mean some of us are old that we knew everybody in the fetish community because it was a smaller sm small group of, of people because we didn't have the cam girls and we didn't have the this and we didn't have the that you know so we were a smaller community and we did know each other much more than than we do now we made more movies per talent yeah where today it's not unusual for girls to come in from who knows where fly in do two weeks worth of work and never show up again we didn't really have that we would have girls that come in and do one movie and go home yeah but we didn't have it as often or as much as the girls now the girls shelf life back then two and a half years two to two and a half years and usually that's it you never heard from them again but the older girls they stayed in touch yeah you know even if they didn't stay they stayed in touch i know where 90 percent of the retired girls are and what they're doing because we were so much of a closer-knit yep. community yeah. you know and now it's just not like that's engaged another problem that we're having now because community wise yeah Twitter is a community. Facebook is a community. And so a lot of people look to that community to reach out to get acceptance. And yeah, and use it as a, as a platform, a network in order to connect. Right, but, but also use it as a sounding board, use it as a comfort zone use it for so many for, for lots of different purposes to give right. off to give off as well as kind of and so you know. do the fans yeah the fans communicate I, I mean I don't have that many fans I have like 13 over 13,000 fans 14,000 fans somewhere in the middle there obviously not all of them are contacting me because I would never be able to answer them all but the few that I engage with all the time and then there are a few that every once in a while yep. engage with me I try to answer them all when I can but it's easy for me I mean if I was a huge star I mean I don't know how Julia does it yeah I don't know how the hell she can answer all these people you know or Jessica Drake or whoever else yeah, I, I don't yeah know when you've got hundreds of thousands of right of followers and fans Legions are yeah. stormy now yeah. I don't know how stormy's dealing with well. all this right now but these are all people that are much bigger stars than I have ever been and sometimes the five people are overwhelming, you know? <laughs> but it's a community, and I understand. And I use that community to help dogs. Yep. That's why yep. I even have Twitter. And so 
I also have it for the occasional nice conversation about how much I love Rush, Rush the band. Yes. And other music. And and sometimes to sell my jewelry. I mean, I make jewelry, so I sometimes use put it up there. And I do have one or two fans that have bought stuff for me, which has been great. It, it's... it's the community itself can be wonderful. I mean, my neighbors are on my Twitter, on my porn Twitter. Yeah. I have a ton of neighbors because of the dogs. They're all there because of the dogs. I, it, I don't, there is no reason why that lady over there should follow me. Yeah. She follows me because I helped her find her dog. And so she follows me in order to help me find other people's dogs as, you know, paying it forward. And that's great. I also... I do stuff with the troops. Um, I'm, I was very big in, I did a lot of Hurricane Sandy recovery. So I, I try to use my social media platforms for the greater good. I'm not an angel. And no. I have a tendency <laughs> to be very hot-headed. I'm Italian. I'm from New York. And uh, everyone could go fuck themselves yeah. sometimes. You know what I mean? Okay, so on that note... And here you, we go. You have been There's a lot to edit. You, you have been listening to the Suburbanista podcast, episode one of Carpool Triple X. Episode one through 20. With, <laughs> with me, Paul McGinn, a.k.a. Planographer, and the wonderful Melissa Monet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen in. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, then please come back again for future episodes where I'll be chatting with other porn performers including Kiki Dare, Ella Darling, Charlotte Cross and Alana Cruz. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at SuburbanistaPod and at Planographer. Until the next time, 